Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silva. And today, instead of our normal look at my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years, I instead I instead will focus that final segment on the career of Antonio Noki only when it pertains to his friendship with Muhammad Ali. That will be my focus on that uh, historical segment, always the final segment of the podcast. I will begin the show with my predictions on the two biggest fights coming up this Saturday, October 8th. First and foremost, the continuation of the biggest rivalry in British boxing history with the second generation. In the early 90s, Nigel Benn and Chris Eubank fought two epic, incredible wars. Uh, Eubank won the first fight, come from behind, knockout victory. Second fight, I thought Nigel Benn won. The fight was controversially scored a draw. And now their sons continue to feud as Connor Benn will fight Chris Bank. Chris Eubank Jr. this Saturday on the zone in England in a fight that makes absolutely no sense for Conor Ben. Conor Ben is a true welterweight contender. The man is a dangerous puncher, a decent boxer puncher. He's got tremendous punching power. He's a better boxer, pure boxer than his father ever was. His father, one of the biggest punchers of the, uh, late 80s to early 90s um uh his fight um Nigel Ben Connor's father Nigel's fight with Gerald McClellan uh winter of 1995 early winter of 1995 one of the greatest fights in middleweight history a fight that both men suffered Nigel Ben was never the same physically after that fight because he went on to lose several of his last fights after that loss. And Gerald McClellan has been a paraplegic since that fight. Um, I'll talk more about that fight later on in, in future podcasts. But you guys want to see a war that had repercussions that last to this day? Check out Gerald McClellan versus Nigel Ben on YouTube now. Connor Ben, like I said, is the better natural boxer than his father, Nigel, but he's much smaller than Connor Ben. Connor Ben had grown to be a super middleweight. Not Connor Ben. Connor Ben's a welterweight. Chris Eubank Jr. has grown to be a super middleweight. They're fighting at a catch weight, I believe 156 pounds. Eubank Jr. versus Nigel Ben Eubank Jr. will make the weight I believe and my prediction is that the bigger man Chris Eubank Jr. will knock out Connor Ben I'm going to make a prediction somewhere between the 7th and 10th round and it could be the type of beating that uh, will be detrimental to the rest of Conor Ben's career. I know these guys are making big money for this fight, but Conor Ben is 
biting off more than he could chew, I believe. It's the type of fight that damaged fellow his fellow countrymen, Kell Brook. When Kell Brook moved up to a middleweight to uh, fight Triple G for Triple G's uh, version of the middleweight championship, he suffered a broken eye socket, and he was never the same after that fight because in his very next fight, he suffered another broken eye socket against Errol Spence. Kudos to Kell Brook for finally retiring at the right time after suffering a lot of damage in his fights versus Triple G, Kell Brook, and then um, later on Terrence Crawford. And Amir Khan, another fellow countryman, fellow Brit, who moved up to middleweight to fight Canelo Alvarez and was almost murdered. I mean, he was decapitated. Way too small to fight a guy as physically big as uh, Canelo Alvarez. And in my opinion, same fate awaits Conor Ben Saturday night in England. The other fight is a brutal mismatch. How in the fucking world is Carlos Ocampo fighting for a quote-unquote Super welterweight title eliminator. These uh, sanctioning bodies continue to give the sport a black eye. Carlos Ocampo has done nothing but beat up cab driver after cab driver after cab driver. He's never beaten anybody of significance. The one time he stepped up four, four years ago when he fought Errol Spence. For Errol Spence's version of the of the welterweight championship, Errol Spence obliterated him in a, in one round, knocked him the fuck out. So how is this guy, who has fought cab driver after cab driver after cab driver, has never beaten anybody of any importance, get a title eliminator against Sebastian Fundura? Matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen, if I'm not mistaken, it's for one of them bogus interim world titles, I believe. The Weeby Crooks, the WBC, is sanctioning this as an interim title. Sebastian Fenduric, who came off an incredible, an incredible fight of the year candidate in his last fight versus Erickson Lubin. A complete war, a fight that Fandora was losing on the scorecards before Lubin retired on his stool late in the fight. Fandora should obliterate Ocampo. Ocampo is getting knocked the fuck out this fight. Fandora, you want to impress me? Knock this guy out in three or four rounds. Do not struggle. Call Sebastian Fandora gives a lot of pressure. He's six foot six. He's Tall and lanky. I mean, he's a freak by size, considering he's a, a super welterweight. He should be able to blast Ocampo. Ocampo's got nothing for Fandura. If Fandura struggles and doesn't stop Ocampo to late in the fight or, God forbid, go the route, then maybe that fight with Lubin took a lot out of him. Um, Sebastian Fandura has no defense whatsoever. He's all offense. He's he's a pressure fighter, a tall pressure fighter that's a brawler. And 
I believe the minute he faces an elite boxer with a lot of movement, he will be he will be thoroughly outboxed and given a a, 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 a thorough beating. But not Saturday night. Ocampa has no business fighting for an interim bogus world title. Man, get that shit out of my face. Anyway, those are my predictions for Saturday night. Now, we go on to the Q&A portion of the podcast. This will be an extended version because there are no... Oh, before, matter of fact, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I forgot, I forgot. I forgot to mention um, a rant that I have this week concerning three of the top ten, maybe even top five fighters on the planet. Ladies and gentlemen, what the fuck is going on with the Errol Spence versus Terrence Crawford fight? We've heard over and over again the last two months, the last two months we've heard over and over again that They've agreed to everything, all the financial terms, the date, and so forth. But now it's looking shaky because rumors are that Terrence Crawford is looking at the how do you say it the uh, the the revenue the revenue split, and that it's not it's 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 not amenable to what he feels he deserves. So I don't know what's going on, if there's any shenanigans. I don't know. Those are the rumors I'm hearing. Let's get this fight together. Let's stop. There, there is nobody else for these two guys to fight. They have to fight each other. If these guys do not fight each other, I don't want to hear it. And Errol Spence fans, I there's no defending him. Terrence Crawford fans, there's no defending him. And I don't want to hear it. Get in the ring. I don't want to hear excuses from both camps. I'm tired of the excuses. I give Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford credit. They want to fight each other. It's not their fault. It's their camps and their promotional teams that are holding this back. Terrence Crawford is a free agent right now. He has no allegiance to any promoter. This fight should be easily made. You don't have Bob Arum that ran interference and who Al Heyman and PBC didn't want to do business with. This fight should be easily made. These are the two best welterweights on the planet. These are two of the top five fighters in the world. Let's get this fight done. And this will be the last I sp speak about on this podcast. I'm not going to mention either man's name until either A, a fight is signed, or B, they sign to fight somebody else. And if both men sign to fight somebody else, I'm going to be ripping both men. I'm not taking any side, all right? I'm not taking either man's side. I'm not making excuses. I want this fight done. Let's get it done. End of story. Now, on to the buffoon of the month. The buffoon of September and the buffoon of October. Tyson Fury. I don't know what the fuck's his problem. A couple of weeks ago, Tyson Fury called out Anthony Joshua. Said, let's get this fight done. Anthony Joshua and Eddie Hearn immediately responded saying, sure, no problem. They agreed to take 40% of what would be a huge fight in London, England. All of a sudden, 
Tyson Fury decides not to fight Anthony Joshua, saying, and then making all excuses in the world. Tyson Fury, listen, Anthony Joshua agreed to fight you, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, this isn't happening. And he's blaming it on Anthony Joshua when the proof is there. Eddie Hearn and Anthony Joshua responded, said that they would agree to Tyson Fury's uh, demands. The fight's not made. And now it looks like Tyson Fury might be fighting another bum in Manuel Char. Man, get that bullshit out of here. And ladies and gentlemen, I have to rip ESPN um, commentators, Mike Coppinger, uh, the main writer over at ESPN.com and on ESPN television, and a guy that I have followed and been a fan of for years, but he is making excuses now for the top-ranked fighters, and I'm really pissed off at this. And that's Max Kellerman. First of all, I'm pissed with Max because he continues to claim that that buffoon Jake Paul is great for the sport, which he's not, and I've gone into it a thousand times throughout my uh, several shows that I've done on here and other platforms. So I'm not going to continually bash Jake Paul because he's a clown, and that's the end of it. There's no excuse for Max Kellerman uh, honoring Jake Paul by claiming that he's great for the sport, which he's not. And now Max Kellerman, when it comes to the Errol Spence Terrence Crawford situation, is claiming that it's Errol Spence and Al Heyman uh, way of, of, of making excuses not to fight Terrence Crawford. Ladies and gentlemen, Errol Spence is not afraid of Terrence Crawford. Terrence Crawford is not afraid of Errol Spence. And now Coppinger and Max are claiming that uh, Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua is a fight that's not easily made. That uh, It's a fight that uh, they have to get the promotion together and and the logistics have to be sorted. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. That's bullshit. A little bit over a year ago, th- th- when the first Tyson Fury-Anthony Joshua fight was negated by a court order, a court ordering Fury fight Wilder because they were contractually obligated to fight a third time, that fight was made in less than a week, Fury versus Wilder 3. So don't give me that bullshit, right? Tyson Fury is grandstanding. He's calling out Anthony Joshua. He called out Alexander Usyk. He called out recently Joe Joyce. He's not fighting any of those guys. For some reason, and I don't understand it, Tyson Fury is now picking and choosing who he wants to fight. Look, I don't think Joshua beats Fury. I would pick Fury in a heartbeat to beat Joshua. Joshua is not the same fighter after he got knocked out by Andy Ruiz a few years ago. He's a safety first fighter. He doesn't fight with the same hunger and vigor that he used to before he got knocked out by Andy Ruiz. I think Fury beats him in a in outboxes Joshua over 12 rounds to win a decision. This is a major fight. This is a big money fight. A fight boxer needs. And Tyson Fury is out there in England hemming and hawing and ESPN making excuses for him. Making excuses for him. And Max Callum laughing it off. Oh, 
Tyson Fury's going to fight a bum on your channel. Manual Char. Nobody going to watch that bullshit. Get that bullshit the fuck out of here. All right. Enough of my rant. Let's get to the question and answer segment of the podcast. Ask Rob Silver. It's going to be a lengthy uh, session. So let me get straight to the questions. All right. Let me go to my hashtag. Ask Rob Silver. Let's get these questions. Matter of fact, the first question I'm going to answer is from my DM um, from my buddy on Twitter. Nice guy, Eddie. Let's get nice guy. Eddie's uh, question. Nice guy, Eddie. Where you at? Nice guy. Where's my question? All right. Here we go. Nice guy. Eddie ask. Every year there's a fight of the year. As a boxing historian, has there ever been a year where there's been several top-tier candidates for fight of the year? Maybe to your knowledge, a sort of greatest year in boxing where it was just filled with great fights. Great question, as always, Eddie. 2019, the fall of 2019, you had several great fight of the year candidates. You had Josh Taylor versus Regis Progress, one of the greatest fights in 140-pound history. You had Errol Spence versus Sean Porter. Tremendous fight, which happened right before he had his almost fatal car accident. But Errol Spence proved that night that he had the heart of a champion in beating Sean Porter, knocking him down late to secure the victory but the best fight of that year happened late in 2019 a unification fight the first fight between Nonino Donaire and Nayoa Inoue it was the fight that both men won because Inoue proved by fighting through a broken eye socket and being hurt several times that he had the heart of a champion he knocked down Nodonia late, similar to what Spence did with, with uh, Sean Porter, to win the decision. And Donaire won because his legacy was secured and he fought an incredible fight versus the greatest Japanese fighter of all time. You had the greatest Japanese fighter of all time in Nayo Inoue defeating one of the greatest Filipino fighters, arguably the second greatest Filipino fighter of all time in Onito Donaire in what I consider the greatest fight in the history of boxing between two men from Asia. Incredible war. 2019, I would say was the greatest year in boxing when it came to fight of the year candidates. Another one would be 1980. And the two best fights from 1980, you could have made an argument for either fight being the fight of the year. You had June 20th, 1980, the epic first fight between Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran. Duran uh, coaxes Leonard into a war, a brawl, and... Duran wins his type of fight by 15-round decision. And then just a few weeks later, Matthew Saab Muhammad, in what I consider the greatest light heavyweight fight of all time, almost gets knocked out early in the fight by Yaki Lopez, comes back, knocks him down four times to win a 14th round knockout. 
either one of those fights could have been fight of the year. My my pick would have been the Yaki Lopez Matthew Sa Muhammad fight. Matthew Sa Muhammad, one of the most underrated light heavyweight fighters of all time, and a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and deservedly so. And Yaki Lopez, one of the greatest fighters never to win a world title, lost all four of his title opportunities. Okay, on to the next question. By the way, um, Eddie, as always, your contributions to the show with your questions, always on point, big man, always on point. Now, let me go to my Ask Rob Silva hashtag. For all of those of you that want your questions answered on the show, Ask Rob Silva on Twitter. Ask Rob Silva. Hashtag Ask Rob Silva. And I will answer all types of questions. Boxing. Life. Shit, I'll even answer some professional wrestling questions. As long as they're old school. Not today's today's wrestling. I don't watch that bullshit. All right. Now. Next question. From Jesus Salas. Another great contributor to this program and um, faithful listener of all my shows. You have the chance, he asks, you have the chance to travel in time to 1900 to 1980. I'm going to shorten this down to 1976, uh, Jesus, because I started watching boxing in 1977. So I'm going to condense it a little bit to 1900 and 1977. Pick five fights you want to see live from this long period. Oh, man, at the top of the list, well, at the top of the list are the two fights between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier of the three that they participated in. March 8th, 1971, named the fight the most historic and The most historic fight ever in the history of boxing. March 8th, 1971. Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier. Two undefeated heavyweight champions fighting each other. In what I believe, ladies and gentlemen, was the first time the two top pound-for-pound fighters ever fought each other. And then, of course, October 1st, 1975... The Thrill in Manila, the third fight of their trilogy, and what I consider the greatest fight of all time. An incredible war. I mean, Ali said it was the closest he ever came to death. He bled for weeks. He pissed blood for weeks after that fight. Neither man was ever the same after that fight. Uh, More on Muhammad Ali later on. Another fight that I wish I could have attended between 1900 and 1976 was the July 4th, 1910 fight between heavyweight champion of the world Jack Johnson and what America was deeming their great white hope in James J. Jeffries. Jack Johnson gave Jeffries a beating. He beat the snot out of him before knocking him out in the 15th round. And then a riot ensued all over the world. I wish I was there to see the looks on the racist rednecks that were in the crowd that were thinking that Jeffries had a shot at beating Jack Johnson. Jeffries' talent, even in his prime, wasn't a pimple on the ass of one of the greatest fighters in the history of boxing, in Jack Johnson. 
these guys, these racists, their their uh, <laughs> their love was Jeff for Jeffries was and their hatred for Jack Johnson was clouded by their blatant and ignorant racism. Two more fights. That's three. Two more fights that I wish I could travel back in time to see live and in person. The, uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, February 14th, 1951. Sugar Ray Robinson versus Jake LaMotta. I believe the fight occurred in Chicago. I wish I was, was there live. I would travel back in time to see that fight because Sugar Ray Robinson, after being given hell for the first half of the fight, Jake LaMotta fought his ass off, was jabbing uh, with Jake, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, pressuring him. But then once Sugar Ray Robinson took control of the fight, he beat and battered Jake LaMotta from pillar to post before the referee finally stopped the fight, I believe, in the 13th round. I wish I was live to see that fight because it was Sugar Ray Robinson at his greatest versus Jake LaMotta at his greatest. And Jake LaMotta showed so much heart and LaMotta was never the same after that fight. And finally, I would have loved to travel back in time to see Joe Lewis knock out Max Schmeling in the first round. In June of 1938. And why? Why? Because once again. Even though this was America versus Germany. Um, Nazi Germany was uh, taking over the world. Hitler was. Hitler was. Uh, killing Jewish people left and right. With his, with, with, with his concentration camps. And his, and his gas chambers. Which of uh, allegedly President Roosevelt didn't know about, I, I I find that very hard to believe. But with all the intelligence, uh, American intelligence he had inside Germany at the time, you're going to tell me he didn't know? Hitler was was conquering Europe left and right, and so all of a sudden. Racist America looks to Joe Lewis to be their savior. So the fight inside a packed Yankee Stadium, I wish I was there because I would have screamed at all the so-called white fans that were supporting Joe Lewis that night who hated Joe Lewis because of the color of his skin. And I would have jumped up and jumped up and down after Joe Lewis obliterated Max Schmeling in the very first round. So, Jesus, that's the answer to your question. The five fights I wish I could travel back in time to. Okay, next question. From Lonnie Gregory, right? He says, he's got a few questions. Okay, first question. Floyd. Mayweather, Bernard Hopkins, LeBron James, Tom Brady, Candace Parker, Sue Bird, and Tarasi. What is it about them that has kept them so sharp for so long? You think it's diet, exercise, methods, superior skill set, all of the above or more, especially Bernard. It's all of the above 
And also that hunger to continue to be great. Lonnie, you know from being a sports fan for many years because we've interacted a few times on, on, on social media. You've been a fight fan. You've been a sports fan. You know your shit. You know your music too. That an athlete has to have the hunger in order to uh, rise to the top of their respective sports. LeBron James is as hungry today as he was damn near 20 years ago when he made his NBA Pro debut at the age of 19. Why? Because he still has that chip on his shoulder and he still thinks that he can be considered one day the greatest of all time and several several uh, experts consider him that. I don't, but you know, everybody has their own opinion. That hunger is still there. Bernard Hopkins, also very hungry throughout his entire life. Bernard Hopkins grew up in impoverished conditions in Philadelphia. Uh, was an armed burglar. He was he 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 went around robbing people, and he will admit to this day that he was a horrible young man. Went to jail as a teenager, came out. Got a second chance, and he never, ever wanted to go back to that life. A life of being hungry. A life of committing crimes off of innocent people. He was a fucking bum. For, ladies and gentlemen, for you to rob people with a gun, for you to sell drugs in your community, you're a fucking bum. Period. You're a bum. I don't want to hear no excuses. Bernard makes no excuses. He knew he was wrong. Came out of prison and never looked back to a life of crime. Devoted his life to boxing and became one of the greatest middleweight fighters of all time and one of the greatest fighters of my era. Soon you'll be hearing a historical overview of his career and it'll be very long because he had one of the greatest, most illustrious careers I've ever seen as a 46-year fan, super fan of boxing and as a boxing historian. Tom Brady still has the desire to uh, play at his at his absolute best. And you've seen signs in the last two years. You've seen signs of this year that his skills have eroded some, but he is still competitive, and he can still win a big game if need be. Still, do not, do not sleep on Tom Brady in a big spot. So, yeah, I think all of what you mentioned, Lonnie, and to me, the most important part is hunger. You have to have hunger. Um, when um, Tiger Woods got smacked across the face with a club by his wife after she, she caught him cheating several times, he lost some of that hunger. He did get it back later on in his career after he had many injuries to win another major. But now he's done. Um, he's done. Well, he's, he's had a historic career. But there are two Tiger Woods. There's the one before he got caught cheating in which a lot of his hunger and desire for the sport died because he felt he let his fans down as well as himself. And post that. Okay. 
All right, what's another? Let me see. Lonnie has another question. Here's Lonnie's second question. Even in those exhibitions, Floyd's punches are crisp and on target. Pinpoint. Has there been another boxer that you've seen with better punch accuracy? There have been several. Sugar Ray Leonard was a much more accurate and pinpoint uh, puncher than um, Floyd Mayweather. You look at Sugar Ray Leonard in his prime, and it was a short prime due to a detached retina that forced him out of the sport for uh, most of the 1980s. But if you look at his pinpoint accuracy against Wilfred Benitez, against Thomas Hearns in their first fight, especially late when he had Hearns hurt, Sugar Ray Leonard was a wonder. To watch with his pinpoint accuracy Muhammad Ali in the 1960s Before he was exiled Was a pinpoint accurate puncher Sugar Ray Robinson As a welterweight And early on as middleweight champion Of the world Had pinpoint accurate punching punches With sharp, sharp Precise and fast as hell Okay um, I would put All those guys above Floyd But yes Floyd in his prime, especially at 130 pounds. At 130 pounds, Floyd was a different beast. Watch his fights versus Angel Manfredi, Gennaro Hernandez, and the masterpiece he put on against Diego Corrales. Those evenings, he was as accurate as any fighter that ever fought on this planet. Great questions from you, Lonnie. Appreciate it. Please continue to send questions. Um, first time contributed to the podcast. I appreciate you, big man. All right. Back uh back to the questions. Let's see. I believe uh, where's my man Malcolm? I believe my my, my my man Malcolm asked me a question. I'm looking for it. I don't see it. Let me continue over here. Let me see. I thought Malcolm had asked me a question. Let me see. I can't find the call. Oh my, hey, uh, Malcolm, um, I apologize. I can't find your question. And I swore that you sent me one, but I don't see it here. So um, I'm a, when I do find it, I promise I'll answer it on next week's podcast. I can't find it here. God, Lord, what happened? I hate that because Malcolm always asks incredible questions, but it's not here. It's not goddamn here. Damn. Okay. All right. Let me move on. Let me move on to Jesus's final question. Jesus asked another question. Jesus Salas asked, He well, he did a tweet. Jesus uh posted a tweet in which he talked about, and I will go into full detail about the fight later on, the Ali Anoki pay per view fight that occurred June twenty fifth, nineteen seventy six. He said it was a two day affair in Puerto Rico where you bought one fight, you saw two fights on closed circuit. The following night, there was a fight that they showed on Closed Circuit in Puerto Rico. And he wanted to know about two uh, two of the fighters on that card. 
Uh, you had Rodrigo Valdez, who fought Carlos Monzon in a title unification for the middleweight championship of the world. And Emil Griffith, legendary welterweight middleweight champion, fought Benny Briscoe. And he wanted to know who were Rodrigo Valdez and Benny Briscoe. Rodrigo Valdez, uh, Jesus, one of the greatest fighters ever to come out of Colombia. Tough fighter, great chin, um, devastating power. He knocked down Carlos Monzon in in in, in their uh, second fight. Um, in the first fight, their first fight was for the undisputed middleweight championship world. Now Monzon was stripped of the WBC version. Because the WBC back then are like they are today. Criminals. Because Carlos Monzon was the best middleweight in the world. And yet he was stripped of his WBC title. Because WBC wanted their own champions. Period. End of story. And Rodrigo Valdez in 1974 defeated the other guy you were asking about. Benny Briscoe for the vacant WBC middleweight title. And then the night of... June 26, 1976, Valdez lost to Carlos Monzon convincingly. Monzon once again became undisputed champion of the world. A year later, they were fighting a rematch, a great fight. Uh, Valdez knocked down Monzon early on. Monzon recovered and won a 15-round decision and then retired for good from the sport of, of boxing. And then... Later on that year, I believe the date, doing this off the top of my head, was November 5th, 1977. Rodrigo Valdez fought Benny Briscoe again. It's the third time they faced each other. And Rodrigo Valdez beat Benny Briscoe to win the undisputed vacant middleweight championship of the world. Benny Briscoe, one of the greatest middleweights, one of the greatest fighters, never to be a world champion, fought several times for the title. I lost count how many times he fought for the title. But I know of three. He lost to Monzon and Rodrigo Valdez twice in the 1970s. And Benny Briscoe fought damn near every great middleweight from the mid-60s to the late 70s. He fought them all. Emil Griffith, Carlos Monzon, Rodrigo Valdez. The list is endless. He fought them all. Unfortunately, he lost to them all. But Benny Briscoe was a great power puncher. Philadelphia legend, Benny Briscoe. So that's the answer to your question, Jesus. Question from the CEO of the Fight Game Media Network, Garrett Gonzalez. And Garrett asks... Can you explain why Mayweather needs to keep fighting these exhibitions? Can't my man sell some of that fleet of cars he has for cash? What the hell is he spending his money on? I don't, Floyd has made damn near a billion dollars. I don't. Floyd is nowhere near broke. Floyd has made enough money for five, six, seven, eight generations of Mayweathers. This is my take on this, Garrett. This is from an outside observer, but this is what I believe Floyd is suffering. Floyd is suffering from the same thing Muhammad Ali suffered from, Sugar Ray Leonard suffered from. Several fighters that didn't need to fight, that continued to fight, because Muhammad Ali, with all his endorsements, and he had movie deals and book deals and appearance fees, didn't have to fight Larry Holmes and Trevor Burbick that 
to essentially put the final nail in 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 the coffin when it came to his health and what caused him to get Parkinson's and his inability to speak. He doesn't fight those guys. It doesn't happen. Okay. Um, but Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, Floyd Mayweather, Mayweather, they all have huge egos. Have or had huge egos because, of course, Ali is no longer with us, having passed away six years ago at the age of 74. And they continue to want or they want they wanted to stay in the spotlight. Floyd ego is as huge as those guys' egos ever were. Floyd loves the spotlight. It's not enough that he's a promoter. If you notice uh Garrett, he's the he's uh Tank Davis's promoter. And in the last few fights that Tank's had, Mayweather's nowhere to be seen. I don't understand why. But before that Floyd would be taking over Javante's press conferences, talking for Javante, for Javante, talking about, uh, oh man, we're doing big things with with Tank. He wanted to continue to be in the spotlight at all times. That's why I believe he's fighting these exhibitions, that he wants to fight Conor McGregor and that he's fighting these unknown guys I've never heard of before. These exhibitions. Uh, last year, the circus show he did with Logan Paul. It's easy money for Floyd, yes, but also keeps his name out there and it he continues to, to, to fight and try and pretend that he's still the best fighter in the world even though he's in his early 40s and his skills have eroded all right yeah you're gonna look great against guys like logan paul like conor mcgregor like name your japanese or asian mixed martial artist yeah you're gonna look great against them if you're fighting these guys that can't fight boxing that don't know how to box of course you're gonna look great there's now this talk of him fighting Conor McGregor again. This type of fight that he thinks will uh, add to add to his legacy. No, it won't, Floyd. But it w- it would also keep him in the spotlight. Yeah, for those who love the circus. I'm tired of the circus. And if you notice, Garrett, his exhibitions are no longer being covered as mainstream news, as mainstream boxing news. Because, to be honest, the fight fans... And the and uh, the boxing media, they don't give a fuck about f- these exhibitions. It's an easy money grab for Floyd, and it's a way for him to soothe his massive ego. It's not financial. Floyd has made so much money. You can't blow all that money. And what? And Floyd, other than the cars he owns, and he owns a lot of cars. He he doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. All right. Um. I believe the only money he spends really is on cars and on the harem he has because um he is involved with several women at the same time. Other than that, I don't see. And, of course, it's children. He does take care of all his children. So that's my answer to your question, Garrett. And it's a perfect segue to the Antonio Noki tribute that I'm about to do because 
that was a guy who engaged in several exhibitions against boxers and mixed martial artists all over the world. And you can make a you can make a claim that Antonio Noki is the father of MMA. June 25th, 1976, Antonio Noki fought Muhammad Ali in the first major mixed martial art art fight of all time. This was landmark. Uh, Muhammad Ali, I believe, got paid $6 million to face Antonio Noki. Um, ladies and gentlemen, for more on Antonio Noki, much more um, diverse, Look into the career of Antonio Noki. Go to the archives of the Fight Game Media podcast, the platform you listen to not, and go to the Write That Down shows done by the single greatest Japanese wrestling historian on the planet, Fumi, and his partner, Justin Nipper, who in his own right, is a great Japanese uh, historian. Fumi Saito and Justin Nipper have on this program, on this podcast platform, a program called Write That Down. And they did a complete historical overview of Antonio Inoki's career that spans several episodes. And I'm sure this week they will also be talking about Antonio Inoki's legacy. This segment of the podcast will briefly touch on that June 25th, 1976 fight. And then I will also talk about the everlasting friendship that Inoki and Ali had after that fight. June 25th, 1976. Originally, it was supposed to be a worked match. My understanding was that that night, Muhammad Ali was going to take the dive, take, take, uh, do the job to Antonio Noki, and it would have been where um, Ali dominated early, bloodied Inoki, Inoki would have, would blade, and then late in the fight, Ali would accidentally knock out Gene LaBelle, the referee, uh, a, a, a great judo artist in his own right, who recently passed away. Um, and during that, um, during Ali trying to help LaBelle back up, An Anoki would kick Ali in the back of the head with his enziguri. Ali would would would, would uh, fly out the ring, land, take a bump outside the ring. LaBelle would wake up, count out Ali, and Anoki would win. My understanding from reading several books on Ali was that Muhammad Ali's Muslim faith would not would not allow him to engage in such a farce. And so last minute, he told the Inoki people, no, let's make this a legit fight. And they threw in a whole bunch of rules to handcuff Inoki. I think he couldn't he couldn't hip toss or throw Ali, certain things he couldn't do. And so the fight was a legitimate fight. It was a real fight. Inoki was handcuffed by several rules that were put in place. And instead, Inoki spent the majority of the fight on his back, kicking the shit out of Ali's legs for 15 rounds. Ali threw six punches in 15 rounds because Ali was doing his best to move away from those kicks that caused two blood clots in his legs. 
you saw severe, severe bruising on both his knees. Inoki kicked the shit out, out of Ali's calves, knees, and thighs. And I believe it affected Ali in his next fight just three months later at Yankee Stadium versus Ken Norton, a fight that he barely won and many people felt Ken Norton deserved to have won. Um, and Ali never knocked out another fighter after that 15-round exhibition with Antonio Noki. That fight, despite the fact that it was a horrible fight, when you watch it, it's a cure for insomnia as Noki's on his back and Ali is moving away from the kicks and he only threw six punches in 15 rounds. That being said, that fight made Inoki an international superstar. He went on to have several fights against different um, mixed martial artists. He'd have another highly publicized fight in 1986 versus a guy who would beat Muhammad Ali two years after Ali fought Inoki, and that was Leon Spinks. And they had a work fight in which he knocked out Spinks in the eighth round. Spinks at the time was going through severe financial hardship so Spinks went on to take on Inoki and several other Japanese wrestlers for a much needed pay because his boxing career was all but done in the United States by 1986 when Leon Spinks fought Inoki in that boxer versus wrestler fight he was done as a professional boxer I mean he continued to fight but he was washed up he was he, he had no business in the ring Inoki and Ali would become great friends. Great friends. In 1990, the Iraqi government had kidnapped several Japanese and American citizens. Antonio Inoki and Muhammad Ali went to Saddam Hussein and helped free those hostages. And while Inoki takes credit for the Japanese uh detainees being um, allowed to come home. The fact remains that it was Muhammad Ali's Muslim faith and Saddam Hussein's respect for Muhammad Ali as not only this legendary figure, the most famous man on the planet at that time, other than Michael Jackson, but his Ali being a fellow Muslim and Ali being this giant of a man and Saddam was taken aback by Ali coming there and asking for the release of these hostages. And so I believe it was Muhammad Ali coming to Saddam Hussein that convinced Saddam Hussein to release those hostages. Of course, Enoki being a friend of Ali and being there that day, took a lot of that credit but in my opinion all credit is due to Muhammad Ali in 1995 North Korea the communist version of Korea held a two day event in which I believe over 300,000 people attended total the two day event Antonio Noki uh was promoting this in conjunction with his New Japan 
promotion and WCW headed by Eric Bischoff at the time. Enoki asked Muhammad Ali to come with him to North Korea, and Ali did. And in 1998, when Antonio Noki retired in his final professional wrestling match, Muhammad Ali was a guest there and was there in the front row. Ali and Anoki had a great friendship. When Muhammad Ali married Layla Ali's mother in 1977, the very beautiful Veronica Porsche, one of the most beautiful women that ever lived. She dropped dead gorgeous. And Layla uh, inherited both her father and mother's handsome looks. When Muhammad Ali married Veronica, he invited Antonio Noki, and Noki attended the wedding. This is how tight they became as friends after their historic June 25th, 1976 fight. And one thing that I want to mention that I didn't realize until they mentioned how old Inoki was when he died this past weekend. Tony Inoki was 79 years old. If Muhammad Ali was alive today, he would be 80 years old. So Ali and Inoki, same generation, a year apart, same age. And at one point, they were the biggest stars of their sport. And Noki at one point was the biggest wrestling icon on the planet. And Muhammad Ali to this day is still the biggest boxing icon that ever lived. So two giants of the sports. And despite the fact that Inoki's English was very limited when he met Muhammad Ali, Ali's Japanese is non-existent. They shared a bond and a friendship that lasted to the day Ali died. And got got so huge that Ali visited Noki several times and helped him with that uh with freeing those hostages nineteen ninety when they went to Iraq to speak to Saddam Hussein. So uh rest in peace to the legendary Antonio Noki. Continued rest in peace to the greatest icon in the history of professional sports period in Muhammad Ali. Ladies and gentlemen Until next week, be blessed and be a blessing.